Part two of Isaiah is, as I said, almost like a, a new book. We're talking about a new period of time. We're talking about uh, a whole new attitude. We're talking about a new uh, Judaism that emerged out of uh, the Babylonian captivity. But I want to impress on you the importance of the Babylonian captivity uh, was probably the probably actually the I would say the most important event in Judaism. It is equal to, if not more important than the exodus out of Egypt at the time of Moses. Now the Jewish people look back on that and uh, always refer back to that as their beginning, their new life. Uh, I would say that the Babylonian captivity and its uh, exodus, you might say, back to Jerusalem in the beginning of, or actually towards the end of the 6th century B.C., was not only equal to the exodus out of Egypt, but it was probably even more important to the people of its time and more important to the people, uh, the Jewish, Jewish people of today. So, what we want to do is take a look at the history, and I'm going to go briefly through uh, the, the past part one so that for those of you who may have forgotten or didn't study uh, part one, we'll kind of catch up rather quickly, or hopefully. All right. <clears throat> Isaiah part one began around the middle of the 8th century B.C. And if you recall, there was the main problem of people ignoring the teachings of Moses, that is, the Jewish people ignoring the teaching of Moses. They were more concerned with uh, the prosperity that had developed over the region of that time period, and they were caught up into materialism. Not any different than today, but that's why the message of Isaiah applies to today just as much as it did uh, thousands of years ago or hundreds of years ago, whatever. All right. But because of their apostasy, their uh, drifting away, their ignoring God and the teachings of Moses, God was extremely dissatisfied and disappointed with them. I'm not going to go into all the details. I'm just trying to bring it up rather quickly. What happened, of course, was uh, the northern kingdom was destroyed in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of what was called Israel at the time. And it was God using the Assyrians uh, to do that, to destroy those people, never to be heard from again. All right. The southern kingdom lasted a little bit longer, actually another almost 130 years. But the southern kingdom uh, wound up in the same way and was conquered by 
the Babylonians then, well, it started in 597 uh, B.C., and then there was a lull because of some other problems that the Babylonians had to take care of, you might say, uh, but they came back at 587 B.C. and conquered Jerusalem uh, and Judah, the main identity of the Jewish people at that time. And then they took most of the exiles, uh, or most of the people that they had conquered uh, from the land of Judah into Babylon. Now, unlike the Assyrians, who when they conquered the northern kingdom in the 8th century and took a number of people into Assyria as indentured uh, servants and slaves, uh, they brought in all of the people that they didn't want in Assyria and brought them back and planted them, you might say, in the land of Samaria. And those people became the Samaritans that were so disliked at the time of Christ. That's another story, though. We'll talk about that some other time. Okay. Um, The Babylonians did not do that. They took only the people that would do them some good. So they left a number of people in uh, Judah or Jerusalem, and they destroyed the city. They destroyed the temple. They destroyed the infrastructure. But they took all of the educated people, those who could be servants, those who could be craftsmen or teachers, uh, or anyone that could do some good. Those people were carted off to Babylon. Along with them, in 597, the first conquering, you might say, or partial conquering, was the prophet Ezekiel. Okay, we're not talking about Isaiah now. The prophet Ezekiel was taken with the people to Babylon. And along with that, he took the main part of what we today call the book of Deuteronomy, which, a, which became the basis for Jewish law. Up until, uh, oh, you might say the 7th century B.C., the book of Deuteronomy was not really accepted, even though it was almost 100 years old. And there's a whole story in uh, various parts of the Bible of how that was brought to the southern kingdom and then not accepted there when it was first introduced, uh, but it was secreted uh, secretedly placed in the temple and stayed there for a number of years until the temple needed some repair and was discovered by Hezekiah. But it was taken to Babylon through the efforts of the prophet Ezekiel. All right. So you have now the people of Babylon, or the people of Judah, being carted off to Babylon. They remained there for nearly 50 years. 60 if they went with the first conquering, you might say. All right. We have no idea of 
How they got there, we assume on foot, but we don't know. Uh, no speed trains a la uh, Governor Brown. Um, you know, uh, no highways or freeways. Uh, so probably on foot. We don't know anything about how they were treated. Uh, there are guesses, but we have no written documents of how they were treated. And more puzzling is we don't know whether Isaiah part 2 or the second Isaiah, how he actually got his information or his teachings to the people of Babylon. And yet that is who he's addressing. So please don't ask me because I don't know and neither does anyone else. All right. It is assumed that most of his works were written out and transmitted in some way to the people of Babylon. But where our story really begins now is around the year 540 B.C., slightly before uh, the mass exodus, you might say. But when I say mass exodus, just think about what would happen to Roseville if half of the people suddenly got up and moved somewhere else. Could you think of the devastation that that would cause not only to the people, but property values, businesses, people who make their livelihood on serving the population of Roseville, what would happen? That would be mass destruction. And that is the problem that the Babylonians faced. But nevertheless, Cyrus the Great. Now, how did Cyrus come into the picture? All right. Well, we go back to the 7th and 8th century where the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom, but then the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians and absorbed those people into Babylon. Later on, it was the Medes and the Persians that conquered the Babylonians. And then, if we want to go on to other uh, history that's beyond that, it was the Greeks that conquered the Medes and the Persians. And then the Romans conquered the Greeks. <laughs> Interesting story, if you follow that line, and this is a little diversion, but I like to throw these in because it helps you to understand some of the other things that are going on in the Bible. And we're going to bring a lot of these other things in because it helps you to fill in the gaps, Okay. But if you remember the story of Jesus at the well, now this is in John's Gospel, you know, many, many hundreds of years later. But the woman at the well, and she uh, is a Samaritan, and Jesus asks her for a drink, and they start a conversation. And she becomes very interested in this man because he's telling her a lot of things that uh, no one else knew. 
she, he says to her, why don't you go back and get your husband? And she says, well, I have no husband. And he says, yeah, you spoke right. In fact, you've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with now isn't your husband. Okay, now, that can be taken in two different ways. Now, I'm using this because I want to talk about something that is related. That can be taken in two different ways, because John's Gospel is written on two different levels, as is most of the Old Testament. The earthly level and the spiritual level. Okay. On the earthly level, what he said and the words that you hear are correct. But on the spiritual level, the woman represents Israel. And the five husbands that she lived with were Egypt, the Medes, the Persians, and the Greeks. All right? And the person she's living with now is not her husband, and that's the Romans. You see how what the words that you heard were metaphors for something actually more important. So, what we're going to do is to have you see that Isaiah is writing in poetry form. Now, not Mary had a little lamb type of poetry. You won't have rhyme or reason uh, sticking out at you. Uh, you've got to do some real sleuthing, you might say, to understand. But the Old Testament in particular is written on two levels, the earthly level and the spiritual level. Let's give you uh, another example, the important one, and that is when there are certain words that will sound real familiar to them, to you. You've heard them over and over in church. And a number of people, when they read Isaiah, will see these words and automatically think, oh, those pertain to Jesus. And maybe they do. But they had to pertain to the people at the time they were written. Otherwise, what they, what was written back in the 5th and 6th century wouldn't have had any meaning if it wasn't written for those people as well. So you can't just say, um, well, you can take several passages out of 2nd Isaiah uh, and say, oh, that pertains to Jesus, and then totally forget what it meant to the people back in the 6th century B.C. So, I want to be able to have you see both points of view. The earthly level is what it meant to the people at the time. The spiritual level is what it meant in the distant future. Remember, in the 5th and 6th century B.C., the people at that time had no thought about a Messiah because that concept hadn't developed yet. It had very little concept of heaven as we think about it today. That was only beginning to come into Judaism. 
And then half of the people wouldn't accept that anyways. And never did, and still don't. So you have half of the Jewish people still do not believe in life after death. Uh, but that, again, is another story. The point is here that we have to look at the words that Isaiah is giving us and how does it apply to the people of its time and then how does it apply to the future. Okay? So, you have a number of things to think about uh, while going through this. And as I said, I will bring in a lot of other information to fill in the gaps because the prophet Ezekiel was very involved in getting to understand, or getting the people of the time, the exiles, to understand why they were there in the first place. You see, the Jewish people always felt that they were the chosen people. And they felt that in the wrong context. They felt that they were so great and God was so good and glorious and so powerful that he was just going to give them everything and protect them from everything and might not make any demands. Well, that's not the case. They were the chosen people, all right, but they were chosen for a reason. And if they didn't follow that reason, or fulfill that reason or purpose, then they were going against God. And what was that reason? It was that they were to develop within themselves a just and loving society so that the other nations surrounding them would see that these Jewish people were living in such a harmonious way and God was blessing them so that they themselves would start to imitate the Jewish people. But that never happened. And it, um, not until much, much later did they even come close to being uh, a loving people. And even today, they are not the same way uh using love as we think of it, or as Christians think of it. We have a song that says, uh, they will know we are Christians by our love. Jewish people don't look at it that way. All right, They make, uh, or they help themselves, they help each other, but it's more of a duty than an act of love. Now, I'm not putting the Jewish people down. I feel sorry for them because they have missed out on the blessings that God promised them through the covenant. The covenant that he made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and down through the ages. That covenant was renewed again with David and the prophets. And the prophets kept reminding these people of the covenant. And their covenant really stood for promising that the Jewish people would have land, which they didn't have at the time of the beginning, 
Uh, that was the promised land that eventually was given them. Uh, they would have descendants, abundance of family, and God's protection over them. Well, they just took advantage of that and, you know, felt that they didn't have to worry about the wrong side. That it is not the case. They were chosen to be a light to the nations. And we'll see this presented very boldly in Isaiah chapter 49. Uh, and what we are trying to see here is how does all of this kind of foretell what's going on in our country today? Not only our country, but all the all over the world. People are more interested in their iPods and tablets and uh, money and food. It's amazing how many channels today on television glorify food and its preparation. Yeah, uh, but Chet asked, why is there uh, an Isaiah 2 and an Isaiah 3? Partly well, several reasons, really. Partly because the theme, the message, uh, is the same. The style is very close. And secondly, when the books of the Bible were put together around the 5th century B.C., 4th or late 4th or uh, early 5th century B.C., um, a lot of the writers' uh, identity had been lost. And in ancient Jewish writing, if you were not a known person, uh, you would never get your uh, works published. Okay. And so, many writers, if they were unknown and still wanted to get their message out, they would attach their works to somebody else. So you have a lot of that in uh, the Old Testament. And you have some of it in the New Testament as well. Okay? Um, the Gospels, for example, were probably not actually written by the people who uh, his name is attached. They were probably written by uh, scribes or somebody else uh, who were very close to them but took their words and polished them up and put them together. Okay. Particularly uh, the book of Matthew. The book, uh, the gospel of Matthew is so well written and so well structured that the person had to have been uh, very well educated uh, and a very important writer. Um, and there are a number of others. For example, we still don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Um, for many years, going way back, for many years it was thought to be St. Paul. Uh, and he was just automatically given credit for most of the books uh, other than the Gospels in the New Testament. That is not true any longer. Uh, but we still don't know who. So we always say the writer of the book of Hebrews. And we leave a name out altogether. Okay. So, getting back to your question, 
the only answer I could give you is that we don't know exactly the specific reasons as to why uh, Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 3 were attached. It's primarily because the message and the style is pretty much... The <laughs> Anyways, where were we? Okay. There's so many things about this time period. And if you'll go to your handout, I want you to go to your handout and look at the last, I think it's the last. This gives you kind of a brief, very brief synopsis of the background of these various time periods. All right, now go to the third one over. All right. From David to the Babylonian exile. This is the the ending of this period of time. Is where we ended first Isaiah. All right. Now we are going to beginning with part two at the top of the fourth column here. So. When you have time, read this and kind of study it. Get it get it in your mind that every 500 years, roughly, from the time of Moses to the time of Christ, roughly every 500 years, Judaism made major changes. And... That's how I've lined this up and developed this little uh, illustration here, is to get you to see how those major changes came about. When Judaism started out through Abraham, God's appearing to Abraham and sort of commissioning him to begin a new family and a new concept based on Abraham's existence or Abraham's theory and belief in a one true God. That was the kernel that started God's choosing Abraham. All right. And from that family and its descendants, the 12 tribes of Jacob, who was Abraham's grandson, and their clan moving to Egypt and beginning a new life in Egypt. Now, why did they move there? Because of the famine that had developed throughout Israel, uh, they had to move in order to feed their family, their flocks, and so forth. But that was part of God's will. That was part of God's plan. The covenant was the beginning of God's plan. (coughs) And, (coughs) pardon me, during that first 500-year period, give or take, 500 years is not exact, please, uh, there were no rules or regulations. There was no strict leadership in Judaism. It was just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their own concepts, their traditions that had developed. But the idea of the one true God is what held them together. 
as they moved from there to the land of Goshen in Egypt, they were corralled, you might say, in a fertile valley and increased rapidly and multiplied, etc., as God wanted them to, because he wanted to build a nation. And he didn't want them to spread out and go hither and yon. He wanted them to stick together, which they did. Unfortunately, they became so numerous that uh, the Egyptians began to be concerned about their um, loyalty to themselves and not to the uh, Egyptian ways and gods, etc., and therefore eventually made them slaves. They prayed to God for deliverance, and God heard them, and through the uh, hand of Moses, he brought them out of the land of Egypt, which began a new period of time. And the first thing that was done, according to the Bible, roughly three months after they left Egypt, was God gave them the Ten Commandments. This was the first set of rules that they had. This was the beginning of a structure that they did not have for the previous 500 years. All right, But now they have a structure and they have a set of rules to live by. And so it developed again and the ruling structure because we're now talking about a large number of people, became the tribal system, the 12 tribes of the sons of uh, Jacob. Now, they all scattered into certain parts of what we call Israel today, or that whole region. And each of the tribes was assigned a certain specific uh, land. And the head of the tribe eventually made himself sort of a king. That was okay for a while, but gradually they looked around and saw all of the other nations of Israel, uh, or surrounding Israel, having a king and being recognized, whereas Judaism was never recognized as a nation up until this time. okay, And so they demanded a king. And God said, I am your king. And they said, no, we want a king here on earth like other nations so that we can be recognized as a nation along with all of those surrounding them. God said, well, all right. I don't agree with it, but I understand You can have your king. And so Saul was elected. Saul was not what God really wanted. Saul started out and tried to be uh, somebody, but he wasn't the right fit, you might say. I don't want to go into a lot of details. And so God said, all right, away with Saul and we will bring in David. And David was elected. David became God's favorite. The covenant was renewed again with David. All right. 
And David and his son Solomon developed what is called uh, the golden age of Judaism. But that golden age began to be tarnished by the fact that they became very prosperous and uh, materialistic. Though they had rules and regulations, they now had a king, they had identity, and so forth and so on, they begin to forget God. And that is rather common. Um, it is somewhat uh, a natural progression, you might say, but that's not what God wants. God wants to be put first. And God had a plan. All of this is in accordance with God's plan. But as the people um, began to ignore God and move into a period of apostasy and uh, a degraded lifestyle, God became more and more uh, displeased with them. So he brings in the prophets. All right. Before that, they had judges, they had uh, priests, not priests in the way we think of priests today, but uh, priests and others who would take charge, but they never really had a lot of authority. After the monarchy started, uh, they only got worse. You had, between the time of the election of King David and the Babylonian captivity, roughly 50 different kings between the north and the south. The north having their own kings and the south having uh, their separate kings. You had about 50. There's only three that can we can look at uh, of those 50 that tried to do the right thing. Okay. Uh, so the prophets were brought in to counterbalance uh, the evil of these people. And you might say, well, why didn't God just wipe them out? Well, that would have taken free will away from them. He wanted them. He tried to get them to come back and be loyal to him. Uh, and that's the way, you know, that's the image of the good father. Sometimes the good father has to do things uh, in a harsh way in order to get the children to really wake up and become, um, or, you know, do the right thing. And we have the image of God behind all of these events so that the question of why, why God, why have you done such a thing? Why didn't you protect us? And this is where we get the people in Babylon didn't understand why God didn't keep them out and protect them and wipe out the Babylonians. Uh, and it was because of their own sin. So you have this strong, loving God, but having to take harsh measures to get his children to see the light. Okay. So that is how the Babylonian, or the 
Jewish people got to Babylon in the first place. And they grumbled and griped, you know, by the uh, shores. I forgot. Uh, uh, Psalm 126 is, uh, and 134, I believe it is, are uh, psalms that apply really to this time period. <clears throat> By the streams of Babylon, we hung up our harps and so forth. That's how it goes. Anyways, but through the prophet Isaiah, uh, prophet Ezekiel, and the book of Deuteronomy, over a period of 50 or 60 years, the people in Babylon, the exiles, finally began to realize why they were there. And they finally opened up and began to read and understand the book of Deuteronomy. It wasn't called that at the time, but nevertheless, the book of the law. And by the time they were ready to leave Babylon through the efforts of God and uh, Cyrus the Great, the Persian, they resolved that they were going to be good law-abiding Jewish people. Unfortunately, after they came back to Jerusalem, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, only because I want you to see what's going on so that it will be easier for you to understand some of the poetic language you're going to be reading. But I want you to see what's going on. Once they, be, once they came back, they were so resolved into following the law that they made that their God and they disobeyed God because they put the law ahead of the God it was supposed to worship. And they, and that is why by the time of Christ and all of the readings that we hear how God chastised the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the rulers of the Jewish people at his time they were right back to where it was way back at the time of First Isaiah. The people had ignored reality, ignored God, because they were observing the laws right down to the nth degree. I'll give you an example. One of the Jewish laws, and there's 613 of them, says that if you don't dedicate uh, your uh, wealth, your your inheritance, or uh, not your inheritance, but your treasure and so forth, if you dedicate that to the poor of the future after you die, you don't have to take care of your parents who are suffering. Because taking care of the poor is more important, even though you don't realize that your parents are part of that poor. You see? It's just a totally convoluted law. Well, Jesus points out that in one of the Gospels. You know? um, and that's the problem, because 
they fix their eyes on the law and not on the practical side of it, or are they really following rules of God, which is love of God and love of neighbor, is over all other laws. So, you're going to see a lot of this problem of, I call it yin and yang, because uh, you have both good and bad clashing. And some of it is because they don't wish to see and observe reality. All right. Any questions? I didn't put anybody to sleep, did I? No. Okay. All right. The other, the other thing that is very important is to keep in mind as you're reading Second Isaiah and Third Isaiah. Eventually, you won't really see a big transition because nothing is going to tell you. When you get to chapter 55, now we're talking about third Isaiah, folks. Uh, it's a very smooth transition. Where in um, second Isaiah, chapter 40, really starts out with an entirely different tone. And so, for those of you who brought your books, and I hope you did, uh, the new people here, let's see, I want to give you... Uh, Everyone have a book now? All right, let's go to chapter 40. There is so much in chapter 40. And I want to cover that today because in each of these chapters for this whole session, 10 weeks, there is so much detail in here and it is so important that usually in, in past uh, first meetings, uh, we kind of just went over formalities and uh, generalities and so forth. Uh, but we can't afford to do that. We have to jump right in and get to uh, the meat and potatoes, so to speak, right away. All right? And I'm going to read some of this because then I'm going to stop and expound on, on some points. Okay. And I'm not going to read the scripture part. I want to read the commentary part because this author has done, I think, an extremely good job of explaining uh, the essence of Isaiah. It says, here begins a thoroughly new message for Jerusalem. Unlike earlier prophets, the author of these words did not ask the people to recognize their failure and confess their infidelity. In other words, the time has changed now. And as the wording of the scripture, comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord God. Uh, speak to the heart of Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her service, that is, uh, her uh, capture, um, her sentence, you might say, has ended and her guilt expiated. 
All right. In fact, she's had twice as much, and she's talking with the words are referring to uh, the Jewish people in general, the exiles. Okay. It says before the exile, the prophet. The prophets had to overcome the people's self-delusion, fueled by the (coughs) existence of the national state, the economic prosperity enjoyed by the powerful, and the active national cult in Jerusalem. The fall of that city made continued denials impossible. Judah's religious political and social institutions were no more. The Davidic dynasty was no more. It was all destroyed by the Babylonians. The temple was in ruins. And the temple, of course, was the greatest symbol of God's presence among the people. And the greatest symbol uh, of the covenant that God was taking and giving to these people. Alright. So by the destruction of the temple. They felt that God had abandoned them. And you'll see some of that in the wording. Chapter 40 begins a unique response to the disasters that came upon Jerusalem and its people. Unlike the book of Lamentations. The book of Isaiah does not give voice to the griefs of the exiles. Unlike the Deuteronomistic history, this book is explicit about its hope for a new and glorious future for Jerusalem. Of course, the prophet believed that the fall of Jerusalem was an act of divine judgment on the unfaithful city. But he also was certain that the city's glorious and miraculous restoration was imminent. The prophet, the prophet saw a dynamic upheaval stirring on the political horizon. A new vigorous and powerful ruler was about to bring an end to the vaunted uh, Babylonian empire. He believed that this was happening for one purpose. God was about to restore Jerusalem. Again, God was about to implement part of his plan of salvation. And just as he used the Assyrians in the north previously in part one, he is now going to use Cyrus and the Persians uh, in a good way to help the exiles return to Jerusalem and to rebuild Uh, Jerusalem and the temple. The prophet uses two metaphors to speak about his beliefs concerning Jerusalem's future. One is masculine and the other feminine. The masculine servant metaphor is the most familiar because of the use in the New Testament. (laughs) And it makes of these passages to express faith in Jesus Christ. That's what I would call the spiritual side. Okay. Like a king, the servant establishes justice. He is a sharp-edged sword and a sharpened arrow, whose suffering will benefit many, and who will be vindicated and 
then will divide out the spoils of war. The female figure of Jerusalem, or Zion, is the second linchpin of the prophet's hopes for the future. Beginning in chapter 49 and extending to 66, the reader hears the story of a woman's life from her abandonment by her husband and consequent childlessness to their reconciliation and rebirth of many children. I see this again is where the prophet uses a lot of symbolisms and metaphors. So you have to be careful that he's not talking about um, the words as we read them. For example, in the book of Ezekiel, you've all heard this, I think, many times. It starts out, uh, I am going to open your graves. Yes, my people, I'm going to open your graves, all of them, and take you out of them. Well, he's not talking about graves as we think about them. He's talking about the fact that they are in Babylon as servants or slaves, and he's going to remove them. In other words, Babylon is the grave that he's talking about. Okay, so that's a metaphor or a symbol. And so you've got to be careful when you read this. You're reading poetry. And forget the rhyme business, because that was lost long ago if there ever was one. Okay. Down at the bottom it says, The prophet does not tell the story of the servant or of Zion as a continuous narrative, but will keep returning to these metaphors in the course of his prophecy. Now, the servant. Remember I said we have to look at some of these on an earthly level and on a spiritual level. Okay. The servant according to chapter 40 of Isaiah and all the way up through chapter 49. The servant is Israel and Judaism. Because their mission was, as I said earlier, to develop a society that was just and loving and be a light to the nations. That was their mission as servants. Servants of God in his plan of salvation. Spiritually speaking, obviously, they didn't fill that job or the mission properly. And therefore, it fell to God through Jesus Christ much later. So, we can say the servant is both. As it says here, the, he's, he's using masculine and feminine. I would prefer to say earthly and spiritual. Uh, but... The earthly servant was Judaism itself as a a movement rather than uh, a a nation or a religion or a nationality. Zionism, Zionism as it's used here, was a spiritual movement. The way the people looked at, uh, we often refer to Rome, uh, when we mean the whole concept 
of the hierarchy of the church, not the place of Rome. And that is kind of the way Zion here should be used. Zionism today is an entirely different thing. Entirely different. But Zionism back at this time period was a spiritual movement and it was a good thing. (coughs) Excuse me. Let's go on a little bit. The prophet stands as a uh, mute witness as the members of the divine council are about to implement God's decision to bring the process of Jerusalem's rehabilitation. Divine council. It was thought at this time period that God in his heavens had a council uh, who uh, advised him, you might say. Uh, This same concept is used in the book of Revelation. And it's interesting uh, to compare the two. uh, Because uh, you might say the book of Revelation had somewhat the same idea. It says the prophet hears a series of commands. uh, And one of them is, you know, tell my people or cry out. It says, A voice says, proclaim. And I answered, what shall I proclaim? That all flesh is grass. In other words, humanity is temporary. It is only when you get to the afterlife that it becomes a reality forever. The prophet hears a series of commands in the second person. Plural. Comfort. Speak of the heart of and proclaim, he wishes his readers to envision one member of the divine council ordering others to take the actions that will mean a new day for Jerusalem. I'm going to skip around here because there's several important points um, to live by and live to read. Let's go on to the next page because he's continuing the same theme of metaphors here. It says, these two metaphors affirms that God has the power to change the course of history. And this is, as I've mentioned before, he used the Assyrians to wipe out the the northern kingdom of Israel and now he's going to use Cyrus uh, the great to do some good things for the people in the exile. Um, says, but it is still concerned about the exiles as individuals. The exiles needed to hear what both metaphors implied, since their primary experience of God had been the experience of God's absence. They felt that God was absent from them and abandoned them for uh, 50 or 60 years. This led them to draw all the wrong conclusions about their future. Uh, In fact, many of the Jewish people never left Babylon. They stayed there. The same thing is true back in the time of Moses when they were in Egypt. Not all of them left. 
they decided that they were comfortable there and they weren't going to, to move. You've got to think about the idea that many of the people that were taken from Jerusalem and Judah to Babylon in 597 B.C. or 587 B.C. died off there. And others were born there. So those that were born in Babylon of the Jewish people knew nothing about Jerusalem except what they heard from others. So there was a lot of, there was a mixed um, authority, there's a mixed relationship there. Uh, and certainly in a mixed uh, alliances. Uh, so a lot of people stayed there. They didn't want to return. Okay. So it's chapter 40, verses 1 to 11, and this is important, sums up the prophet's message in just 11 verses. This, take, uh, this text makes the astonished announcement that God has forgiven Jerusalem and its people. It is Jerusalem's task to proclaim this message. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm just getting so choked up with this. The text makes the astonishing announcement that God has forgiven Jerusalem and its people. It is Jerusalem's task to proclaim this message to all the cities of Judah and to the world. The remainder of chapters 40 to 55 is simply an elaboration of that message. So, the whole idea of proclaiming God's goodness and the message that really is the essence of the covenant is to be proclaimed to all the cities of Judah and eventually to all the cities of the world, world of that time period. And that continues to be even our message that we should be proclaiming through our lifestyle today as Catholics. The Jewish people never, and even today, never went out of their way. There was never <clears throat> any missionary work by Judaism uh, then or now. Um, they do not believe in proselytizing, uh, but they will accept new people coming into Judaism, but they have to do it on their own. And once they are um, accepted into Judaism, then they are Jews for life. But um, they do not go out of their way to try to bring people in. And that, of course, is not what God wants. God wants all people to be brought into the fold called now the people of God. For we are the chosen people. And our purpose and our objective is really to open our hearts to all people and convince them that Jesus Christ is Lord and God for us and for all mankind. 
That is kind of the message. That is the light that we are to carry. In fact, one of the major documents of Vatican II is called Lumen Gentium, which is Latin for the light of the nations. The church is the light to the nations. And we, as part of the church, should be reflecting the teachings of Christ to all nations. In these first 11 verses, and in chapter 40 in general, there are a number of questions. It says, by asking a series of rhetorical questions in verses 12 and 14, the prophet leads the exile to the conclusion that the Lord is the creator of the universe. Not only the creator, therefore, but you might say the father. The father figure, and that's where we get the father figure of God. He is the creator, and therefore he is going to maneuver his creation according to his divine wisdom. And therefore, people often think, well, God is so cruel, he did this and he did that. He wiped out the Assyrians and he did, you know, he wiped out the people at the time of Noah and the ark and he wiped out the Egyptians in the past and so forth. Remember, God is the creator. And if, it's unfortunate, but if people get caught up in something that causes them to lose their life for the furtherance of his divine will and his plan of salvation, they will be rewarded for that in heaven. And since we're all striving to get to heaven in the first place, they get there a little bit sooner, uh, they will be blessed that much sooner. Okay. So don't look at it as God being so cruel. Because he isn't. God is divine love. And whatever he does, love is behind it. Has a reason. And it's that reason that propels us, you know, to further our relationship with him so that we can come to understand it. Alright, that's an interesting question. The question is, if there are 613 Jewish laws, why do we only follow the 10? Well, if you look at what those 613 laws are, are and where they came from, they all came out of the tent. And it is like taking uh, a nice juicy steak and chopping it into hamburger. Uh, hamburger isn't quite as good as a nice juicy steak. Um, and I would rather have the steak than the hamburger. Okay. Uh, It is Moses and his followers who took the Ten Commandments and minced them down to all of these laws. 
So if you kind of condense them back up into uh, the important element, you will see that they get back to the ten that we look at. Okay? Uh, many of those are so minute and so um, outdated. For example, <clears throat> there's something about uh, you can't whip a horse uh, on the Sabbath. Uh, there's another one that says you cannot light a fire on the Sabbath. Well, how many of us do that anyways? So, that is why we only look at the ten, and <clears throat> even in the ten, if you go to St. Paul's way of looking at it, he narrows it down to two. Love of God and love of neighbor. And he tells us that, in fact, I believe that's in one of your handouts there. He tells us that if you observe love of God and love of neighbor to its nth degree, you cover all of those others. Okay. So, uh, partly to answer your question though, most of those 613 laws are so minute and many of them uh, are totally obsolete because we just don't do those things anymore. Okay. Any other questions? Yes. Well, but also, the Jewish people were so hardened, you know, that's why God kept uh, having them be uh, captured by Babylonians and everybody else, to uh, give them more laws, more instructions, because they had hardened hearts. And uh, for the example, like, God didn't like divorce, but Moses said, okay, you can divorce your wife. And Jesus said, no, I don't like divorce. Mm -hmm. You know, God didn't mean for divorce. But the Jews were so hardened that Moses said, okay, this is what you have to do to end the law to get divorced. Is it kind of the same parallel? Yes, yes, very much so. Uh, I'm sure all of you have heard that. Do I have to repeat it? I couldn't anyways. <laughs> the 613 laws were because they were con so concerned with rules and regulations, they didn't want to live by conscience. They wanted to live by something written down. So they could say, well, you know, how far can I go before I fall off the edge and commit a sin? Um, and, you know, that's not what God wanted. God wanted a free relationship based on love. And yeah, if you fall off the end once in a while, don't worry about it. God will be there to pick you up. It's only when you turn your back totally on God that you're in the wrong. Yes? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, what June says is many of these laws were dietary. That's true, and they were developed primarily by Moses for hygiene and health reasons, 
rather than for religious observances. For example, in the book of Leviticus, there is a very specific rule that the blood from sacrificed animals or from any animals is verboten. You couldn't, cannot eat that or use that under pain of sin. But that is not uh, a religious rule. It is a hygiene rule because so many diseases are carried in the blood of animals. And if consumed by human beings, those diseases can be transmitted to human beings. So it's common sense. It's not something that God is going to be pleased with because you didn't eat blood sausage, for example. There is such a thing. Okay. Uh, and many of the rules uh, were, as June pointed out, dietary, which over a period of time became part of those 613 laws and were not originally originally intended by Moses to be an extension of the Ten Commandments. Yes, Karen? Uh, the question Karen is asking is, in the beginning, did they make a distinction between the Ten Commandments and the 613 laws that came out of them? After a while, no. No. They all became part of the law, which is the title given to the first five books of the Bible which we call the Pentateuch. Pentateuch is a Greek word meaning five books. Okay? Uh, they call it the Torah. The Torah is a rough translation of Hebrew uh, meaning the law. Okay? But the interesting part about that, particularly for modern Jews, is they don't realize that it took 1,500 years before the Torah to be developed in the form it is now. So what did all those Jewish people in that first 1,500 years do? See, they didn't have the Torah. It is only modern Jews who look at it in that way. Because, for example, the book of Deuteronomy was written in the 9th century not accepted until the 6th century in Babylon. The book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, was not written until the 5th century, the early part of the 5th century, and then put in place, the first place, because it established a beginning. Okay, That's the first words, in the beginning. Um, so you have these kind of odd exceptions to a lot of the things that the Jewish people hold up as, pardon the expression, gospel. All right, But they weren't always. That's why I developed this little diagram here. Okay? Because 
for the first three columns, the Torah didn't exist. Or it wasn't accepted. It wasn't until the fourth column on the right uh, where it was accepted. So you have all of these kind of questionable rules and regulations. Okay, yes. Any other questions? Tish? Do I have any comments? I just say, yay, man. <laughs> I think it was a, I think it was a very well done book. <clears throat> I have a few more up here. Anyone that wants another one of these, uh, there's a few more up here, uh, that you're welcome to, to have them. Okay. Any other questions? Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you for so many graces and blessings, particularly uh, for the gift of faith and for the gift of faith through the Catholic Church. So help us. Help us to truly understand how you want us to live. Help us to develop a relationship with you so that we report to you and to you alone. So give us the strength and the grace to truly turn our minds and our hearts uh, into a prayer of submission. So we thank you for this time together. We just thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Amen.